Hello everyone, my name is Shauna Ramsey and I'm a Title Plus consultant with LawPro. We're bringing you the fifth episode of the In Closing podcast today where we'll be discussing topics important to the real estate community. Whether you're a real estate agent, real estate broker, lender, lawyer, investor or homeowner, we hope to bring you some insightful content. Today's guest is Ray LeClaire. Ray is the Vice President of Public Affairs with LawPro. In Ray's words, he's a real estate lawyer at heart currently engaged in claims prevention, as well as government and stakeholder relations. Ray is also a member of the Working Group on Lawyers and Real Estate, and he was the recipient of the 2022 OBA Real Property Award of Excellence. Today's chat will be loaded with information on current news, as well as how things are unfolding. Don't miss this episode, folks. Ray is a wealth of information. So let's go find out what's on Ray's plate. Good morning, Ray, and welcome to the fifth episode of the In Closing Podcast. Good morning, Shauna. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Ray, you and I have known each other for a pretty long time. I a few, remember. A few, few, few yeah, years. <laughs> yeah, I think we first met when you were practicing real estate in Ottawa. Correct. So, how did you end up here as Vice President of Public Affairs with LawPro? Um, convoluted road. Um, as you say, I practiced for Ottawa, did uh, in Ottawa, practiced for 25 years. Um, uh, basically, uh, was with a large law firm, went with a larger uh, law firm, Toronto law firms, but in Ottawa, there are Ottawa, Ottawa offices. Went out on my own, started my own, um, started an ADR firm, uh, went back out on my own, had uh, you know one office, two satellite uh, offices uh, in the east end of Ottawa. Um, mostly did, uh, I consider myself a real estate lawyer, so I've always been in real estate, um, but mostly did solicitors work, um, corporate commercial wills and estates and things like that. Um, but always sold myself to my clients as being a GP of the law. And you come, with, you come to me with any problem, and if uh, you need to go further, then I can d- direct you in the right place if you need a specialist. Uh, from there, um, got an opportunity to go in-house uh, with a development company, um, again in Ottawa. Um, did some development work, some condo work, uh, some uh, uh, construction, um, some entertainment law work. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, through throughout all of that, I've always been um, busy and uh, and uh, with uh, organizations and so sure. CCLA in Ottawa, the OBA, uh, uh, CBA and, and so on and through that uh, met a number of, uh, of different people and uh, um, then there was an opportunity uh, uh, that the Title Plus um, the Vice Presidency became available and did that for a few years until um, government relations work was kind of more pressing um, and needed and then so I switched from uh, from Title Plus to uh, government relations. And so that's where I've been, and I've been now with LawPro for 14 years. Um, mostly doing now government relations work. Um, so spend a lot of time at Queen's Park or with the MPs and, uh, and uh, their staffs, um, and do uh, claims prevention. So going around the, the province and the country speaking uh, to uh, lawyers uh, about what they, they should and should not be doing based on the, uh, the claims we do see, um, and uh, try to uh, improve uh, um, their practices and uh, their habits and uh, hopefully get rid of some of the bad habits. And uh, as I say, I, I like to uh, think that if I do my work well, then they won't have to call my colleagues and claims. So <laughs> not quite that successful yet, but uh, <laughs> that's what we strive for. Wow, so that's one heck of a journey. Um, and along the way, I know that you have gained a wealth of knowledge. So I know that you've got a lot of information to share with us today. I thought maybe we would start uh, talking about 
in your opinion, what is the biggest issue facing the real estate community and real estate lawyers today? Um, there are a number one, and there are a number of them, as, as, you, as you can imagine. But I think the biggest one right now that everybody's seeing, and, and it is exciting the public more than anything, is fraud and uh, uh, ID theft and uh, mortgages being put on properties without the owner's uh, consent, um, homes being completely sold out from underneath uh, people. Um, and uh, so that is the biggest issue that we see. Um, Lawyers are, are somewhat at a disadvantage um, to deal with it because these are uh, mostly organized crime. They're very well organized syndicates that are that are behind these frauds. Uh, <clears throat> they are very well trained. They have very good um, uh, documentation, and so lawyers who have very little training in identifying fraud, um, you know, make it difficult. But that, but that's why it is so pressing for lawyers to understand a little more um, about, and it's not just lawyers. I mean, it's now spread to uh, real estate agents, real estate brokers, banks. Um, all of them have a, a, a key pl place in, in, the org in the transaction. And uh, if everyone does their job a little bit better, um, then there's a good chance that we could reduce what we have. I don't think we'll ever eliminate it. And one of the easiest places for lawyers to start in combating fraud is basically ID verification. Right, right. So, yeah, there's been a lot of information in the news, and I know I've gotten, I've received a lot of phone calls from homeowners who are concerned about becoming a victim of fraud um, and wanting to know how they can protect themselves and so on and so forth. So, we know that title insurance certainly plays a big role in this. Um, but from a lawyer's perspective, you know, when they're closing a transaction and you talk about ID verification, what can they do to really verify that I, that ID is valid? Well, before we get there, let me just back up on something you said. The sure. title insurance is important. I think title insurance is the answer. Um, I'm a big promoter of title insurance. I'm not saying it's the end all of everything because I've always cautioned people about what exactly they're getting. It's an insurance product, so obviously there are limitations to it and you need to understand it. Some people are indicating that, well, if your property has a mortgage on it, then it's safe. That's not true. Um, a lot of times, yes. Properties that are without a mortgage are targets of fraud, but you have properties that have mortgages that are as easily targeted. Um, if they're going to defraud the title, they can easily put a fraudulent discharge of mortgage on, and, that, and we've seen that a number of times. And so there's this misconception going around that if I don't have a mortgage, I'll call my lawyer, I'll give them a mortgage so the, the lawyer puts a mortgage on title in their name to protect the title. Really? It does no such thing. And it, it, you know, it's a misconception. Um, you know, the fraudsters are not going to call up the lawyer and ask him to discharge the mortgage. They're going to do a fraudulent discharge, and then they're going to move on. So that is not a great answer to it. Really, what you have to do is get title insurance. There is existing owner title insurance with, that you can apply for. All of the title insurers provide it. You need to, uh, but just call up your lawyer, and they will arrange it uh, for you so that you do have, and that's the best way to protect yourself um, dealing with fraud. So coming to ID verification, so first of all, uh, the Law Society provides four ways for us to be able, for lawyers to verify ID. Um, there's the government-issued photo ID, which is basic, basically when you see um, the individual, you get the actual piece of ID in your hand and you can re review it. It's not, it's a valid piece of ID. Um, the other one is a credit file method where you get access to their credit file uh, through the credit bureau and you ask them questions and make sure they answer the right answers. Unfortunately, lawyers don't have access to credit information. So typically that doesn't work for lawyers. That may work for banks and, and others, but not for, for lawyers. There's a dual process method 
which is where you have two sources of government ID, um, and the Law Society has a great list on what, I, what sources of ID to get to, to verify and deal with. Um, and then the, the last one is basically to retain an agent to do it. So if the, you're not local, you can't meet in person, you can get an agent to verify the individual's ID. So there's those four methods. There was talk about making a change um, that has been postponed from the Lost Society's point of view and that may come back for next year. And so we'll monitor for that. But for now, that's basically what, what, we, uh, what we have. Um, coming to the actual ID, how do you verify its ID? Unfortunately, there are some very good frauds out there. And uh, unfortunately, it appears too easy to be able to, uh, to uh, fraudulent, fraudulently produce um, ID. And so, you know, take some simple steps. Um, take, when you have the ID, compare the picture on the ID to the person in front of you. It's amazing to see how when we have claims that basically the person doesn't look at all like the picture. Um, in fact, sometimes not even the same sex. Um, so, you know, it, it, as I say, it's not a copy and file exercise. You have to actually um, look at the ID and uh, scrutinize it. And so one of the things is to look at the picture. What is the facial expression on the picture? Um, if you've been through the, the, uh, um, uh, the driver's license or the um, passport application, I mean, they tell you you have to have a neutral expression. Don't you can't smile. have a smile. Yeah. Exactly. Smile. So if the person's smiling at you on the ID, it's fake ID. Um, so that is something to, to be looked at, and that's a fairly easy to it. Compare different IDs. So if you get two IDs, you get a driver's license and you get a passport, they cannot be the same picture. Remember the process they went through. So if it is the same picture, one of them is fake, if not both. Um, and so again, an easy way to be, to be able to look. Test the physical description that's on the ID. The person is six foot, the person in front of you is five five. That should be an indication that, you know, again, things aren't, they have X colored eyes. Do they have that? Um, you know, that's on the ID. We can compare that to the person that's in, that's in front of you. And it's just amazing to see how many pieces of ID we get uh, <clears throat> when we discover a fraud and that doesn't match. Really? Yeah, yeah. so we need to, to look at that. Um, another thing on the numbers. So most people know that the number on the driver's license, the last six numbers, are your data, the person's date of birth. Um, but another interesting thing that I just recently learned is the first letter of the number is the first letter of your last name. Oh. And so there's another way to be able to identify. Now, some say, you know, if I have a driver's license, I can check it against the ministry and they will tell me if it's valid. And yes, that's true, they can. The problem with it is they tell you it's valid or not valid. They don't tell you the name, they don't give you a picture. And so yes, you have valid ID, but you don't know if it's that person that's on the picture or that name. And um, unfortunately, what they're doing is now fraudsters are caught onto this, they're actually taking valid ID, valid driver's license, and changing the picture and the name. And so that's, you know, it's, it's a good indication. Obviously, if it's not valid, that's a good indication. But if not, then you have to be uh, careful of it. Um, what is the age of the photo and the person? Are they appropriate? So you have a piece of ID that's, uh, you know, five or 10 years old, and yet the other picture looks like they're just recently taken. Um, again, an indication that you may have uh, a, a problem. Um, does the signature on the ID match the signature the client is giving you on documents? Um, often what fraudsters will do is they just use a script for the uh, signature on the fake ID. Um, it doesn't match at all the person's signature. Um, again, <clears throat> may not be, there may be some reasons for it, maybe some reasons for all of these. In fraud, 
one indication is never confirmation, but it, it leads you to asking more questions. And so in something like that, you would have to ask, why is the signature different? And it could very well be different that they use different signatures and so on. But again, it, it's, it's something to look at. Uh, we're told that when they modify ID, they superimpose a picture on top of it. And so when you pass your finger over it, you actually feel a bump where the new picture is. And again, you should not, you know, look at your own driver's license, try that, you'll see that you don't have a bump if the other ID has, then there's a question to, to be asked. Um, one of the interesting things I had is somebody, somebody said, I asked for the library card. And I thought, why would you ask for a library card? Mm -hmm. Who uh, has a library card anymore? Well, well, <laughs> no. There's a lot. There's a lot of library cards that now uh, allow you to have online resources. Oh, okay. Films and movies and videos and 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 uh, music okay. and so on. So they still get it. And the the, the, the reasoning was, any fraudster is not going to go to the point of getting. No, you know, I, valid. Now, mind you, to your point, many people may not have a library card, mm -hmm. but as for other cards, you know, what else do they have in their wallet? Um, and, you know, if their real ID pops out at that time, then, of course, that could be a telltale sign, right? <laughs> so, again, it's, it's just little things to be, to be done that, uh, to help you um, go through it. Um, the AGCO, the uh, Gaming and Alcohol um, um, Commission, has a, a nice tips checklist on what to look for in ID. And just uh, uh, Google AGCO um, checklist tip sheet and uh, basically you'll see a nice little uh, uh, checklist there. Avoid a claim obviously you know has a uh, some uh, articles there that we have a court, uh, avoidaclaim.com that's something LawPro puts out um, that is there. And the other thing is we've been talking all along here about individual ID. Um, we now have corporate ID theft and so what happens is more so under the old system, but we'll talk about that. But basically what happens is the only information that's available for a corporation is the directors and officers. We don't know who the shareholders are. And so the, typically what, you, what a lawyer does is we'll call for a corporate profile. The corporate profile will show directors and officers. A person shows up saying that they're the officer or director. They have ID of, that, of their name. Uh, they may have a minute book. And they say, you know, we own the corporation. And that's all the lawyer has to go on. Um, but what happens is fraudsters are now filing false form ones. They're changing the directors and officers of the corporation. So you should be looking not only as the form, the, the, the corporate profile, but when was the last filing? And if the last filing is a recent form one, that should bring up some spidey senses to say, look into this. Why has there been a change? There's been nothing in this corporation. All of a sudden there's a change. And they're They'll doing probably... that in anticipation of a fraudulent transaction. Exactly. And up. creating the minute book and so on and so forth. So these are all tips for real estate lawyers, of course. When they're closing a transaction, they're going to verify the buyer's ID to make sure they are who they say they are. So just for our listeners out there, if you're a homeowner or a real estate agent or a lender, these are the kinds of things that the real estate lawyer is responsible for doing to try and prevent fraud. Not only the real estate lawyer. Um, in fact, RICO just came out and did put a, uh, a notice out to all of their eight real estate agents saying, you have an obligation to verify your client. You have to look into these things. So these things apply as much to real estate agents, as much to real estate brokers, as much to banks when you go in for a loan. Um, there is no, this is not exclusive to the lawyer. Um, this is basically anybody who's dealing with a real estate transaction because it, it, it may start different places. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it may start with a real estate agent, it may start with a real estate broker, it may start with a lender, um, it may start with a lawyer. Um, but if all four of those put that through, now for the homeowner, of course that's gonna be an annoyance because every time you try something, everybody's gonna be after you for all of this information. But understand that that's for your protection. Right. Basically that is there to protect you and to protect anybody else in the system that basically you have um, a proper person that we're dealing with. It is a proper transaction and the money is going in the right place. Right, so we're working together trying to get the real estate community to work as a team to try and uh, you know, curb these fraudulent transactions. Um, and you often see when you walk into a lawyer's office, they'll often have a notice right there at reception to anyone that's walking in. If you are there to sign documentation to close a real estate transaction, be prepared. You're going to need to show your ID. Correct. And, yeah. that, and that is the proper, proper way to proceed and, uh, uh, and, and more attention should be spent to it, not less. Uh, the biggest problem we have also, you know, whenever there's a claim against a lawyer, is we ask for their file and often there's not the documentation that we would like to have there to be able to protect the lawyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if we have, you know, some kind of note, we always say, you know, that in real estate, the buzzword or the, the you know, the golden um, uh, rule is, is location, location, location. Uh, for Law Pro, it's document, document, document. You want everything documented in your file so that if it comes up, somebody asks you a question, you don't have to go by memory. You actually have something objective in your file. Um, and that could be a note, that could be an email, that could be a, a, a retainer, that could be a, a, a reporting letter, that could be, uh, you know, an acknowledgement that the client signed. There are all kinds of things that can be done to be able to put that uh, in place and obviously copies of the documentation um, that you dealt with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so out of curiosity, and I know we may not be able to go into too much detail on this topic, but since COVID started, things have changed a little bit, you know. People are not always going to see their lawyer in person to sign closing documentation. So we now have virtual meetings taking place. Do you think it's more challenging for lawyers to verify ID when they're, when they're doing these meetings virtually? Absolutely. Um, everything is more challenging virtually. Um, it is more difficult to, uh, to know who you're dealing with. Um, you may have, um, in front of you on the camera, you may see only one person. You don't see who's behind that camera. You don't see who's around. If they're, say they're alone in a room, you don't know who's behind the other door. Um, and so it brings up a whole bunch of issues as to, you know, is there any pressure being put onto this person to deal with it? Um, when you're dealing with ID, if you're not seeing the actual ID, um, then it again becomes much more difficult to be able to identify frauds. If you can't touch it and feel it, uh, that's one of the things that, that helps you uh, understand that you have uh, the real thing. Um, getting pictures and, and you know seeing um, uh, just on screen uh, makes it difficult. When you're looking at, at signing, I mean, do you actually see the person signing? Um, mm -hmm. I have a lot of people who have DocuSign, um, you know, and so you're sent a link, you go in, you open the document, you press a button, it adds your signature and you close it and it's done. Right. Nobody saw me put that signature there um, and so um, you know, that's not acceptable for like signing, signing wills. Um, now, there is somewhat also something, some will say better security now because now you know who signed. You don't really know who signed, you know whose account was accessed to sign. Um, and we've had this in a situation where um, an elderly lady um, um, who did not really understand um, computers and, and needed some help, um, 
you know, sign back a document within, within minutes. No, you know, something extraordinary for what the lawyer said, you know, he thought his client was capable of. And uh, called out of curiosity, you know, uh, where did you get your special talents all of a sudden? Yeah. You know, it was so difficult dealing with you before. And she said, oh, why? What happened? And uh, so he explained, well, you signed the document. And she says, oh, my niece must have done that. She has access to my account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know it's definitely something that people want. They want the ability to do this virtually. Everybody's busy these days. You know? yeah. So time is of the essence. And this is a convenience for them. And lawyers want it also. I mean, it's not the saying that, you know, it's not, it's not just the public. I mean, definitely the public wants it. And, and we've seen where the public will, will disrupt the whole industry uh, for their convenience. Um, but a lot of lawyers find it much easier to deal with. I mean, if you don't have to have clients coming in all the time, you just go from screen to screen to screen, you can be much more efficient. You can see much more, many more things, which is great. Um, but just be reminded that there are some things that a little more that we have to do, a little more check, a little more verification, or be mindful of those things that may be um, going on in the background and maybe put an extra step in to be able to, you know, uh, confirm what is happening. Yeah. Anytime a process changes, there are new challenges to face, right? Absolutely. So on that topic, one of the other issues that I wanted to talk about today, um, when a lawyer is closing a real estate transaction and they're at that point where they're actually ready to close, there are funds that are being transferred from one office to another, et cetera. Has something changed there? Like what are we, what are we looking at now with funds transfers? Things have changed, but a lot of things are the same. Um, it's much more difficult during the pandemic, of course, branches were closed and uh, you know, more and more banks are getting away from checks and certified checks. Um, and so they're we've being pushed to uh, a virtual funds transfer. Um, the problem we have in Canada is the system we have. Um, so in Canada, there's, an, there's a, an association, Payments Canada, which basically sets the rule of funds transfer for all banks, all financial institutions in the country. Um, it has, um, has established and has had for the longest time two channels to transfer money. Uh, one is, and people may have heard it before, LVTS um, and ACSS. Um, LVTS is large value transfer system and basically that's 1% of all of the transfers. 99% um, is by ACSS, that's checks, uh, you know, when you're doing your, your online on, on your phone to pay a utility bill, uh, when you're getting your paycheck, um, those are all ACS transactions. The difference between the two is that LVTS is guaranteed funds. The problem we have with the systems today and in Canada, you know, very good ability to transfer money very quickly, but no information or very little information. And so you don't know what system you have. So basically the, the whole system works on a question of trust. We trust that the money will eventually get there. In the meantime, we're giving you a credit. You get instant credit. So when you open your account and you see it online and you go, oh, the dollar's there in my account. No, you have a credit in your, in your account for a dollar. That may be converted into a dollar later if the process continues and that could be minutes, days, could be weeks um, to have that confirmed. But in the meantime, you have a credit. Most people see that dollar in online on their account as being a dollar and they spend it. And that could be an error because under the ACSS, which is 99% of the transactions, that can be pulled back by the bank. Wow. And so you could be left with a short. And so for most people, I mean, you know, paying your bills, you know, we went to lunch, I'm sending you my half of it. You know, if somehow get pulls back, you know, we can arrange it, it's a small amount. 
for lawyers for trust accounts, that's not a small amount. Those are important funds, and in fact, they're not even our money. They're our clients' money. So we have a fiduciary relationship, so we have to be careful of what we do with that money. And that's the problem we have today, is that you know, we have a system that is good at putting a credit in your account, maybe money, but we don't know which one because we don't have the information. Now, Payments Canada is modernizing their system. We're going from a two-channel to three-channel. And so um, they've already started. Last year, they moved LVTS to the system they call Lynx now. Um, same system, basically, um, except it's now modern technology. So being, being that there's modern infrastructure, they can now do much, much more things, and there is um, much more to be done with information, and that's coming. Um, they were supposed to actually launch, there's an ISO 2022, which is International Data-Rich um, Information Protocol. Um, that is being used across the world. Um, and think of it as today we can send the information worth in a tweet as opposed to under ISO 2022, they can send a book. And so the, the difference is that is that stark. Okay. Um, and so once I put it, that was supposed to be done in links in November of last year. That was postponed because the U.S. are changing their SWIFT system to adopt ISO 2022, as many other countries have already done so. And so they postponed it. It's supposed to happen sometime this year in links. Uh, and so at that time, we can expect maybe to get more information. Um, the second um, channel that we're going to put in is a brand new channel, which they call the real-time rail. And it's usually small payments. When I talk small payments, um, they're talking maybe starting, if we're lucky, at $50,000, which is, which is good, not necessarily small. Um, the UK and the US have had it for a number of years. They started at 50, they're now 250,000. Um, but they're usually for smaller uh, amounts, um, business to business, person to person kind of, uh, uh, of payments. That was supposed to be launched this year. That has now been postponed indefinitely. So I'm not quite sure where that is. The third system, which is the ACSS, which is the 99% of all transactions, um, was supposed to be done a year later, which would have been in 2024. But now because real-time rail is postponed, we don't know where this is. The problem we have, of course, we're stuck. We don't have information. Mm -hmm. So we've modernized links. Um, we haven't introduced the others. And we're still in the situation where we get a dollar. It's a credit for sure. It may be a dollar, but we don't know. Now, the one saving grace in all of this is links itself. When you put the instructions in and it accepts the instructions to transfer money, will provide a code, um, the PCRN, Payment Confirmation Reference Number. Um, and basically that is unique to links. And so when the lawyer has the capability of sending wires on their desktop, they will get a receipt. That receipt should have a PCRN in it. And how you identify PCRN, it starts with LVTS, the, the old acronym, LVTS and nine numbers. And so if you have that, that's the PCRN that's unique to that transaction that confirms that you're in links and they're transferring the money. And anybody who gets that PCRN and the dollar now knows that they have a dollar because Lynx is irrevocable money, and you know that you have real money. So that number is supposed to go through the transaction. Then the bank receiving bank receives that number. The receiving lawyer will now receive the receipt from the sending lawyer that we do that they do now by fax or email or however would they transmit it, should have the PCRN. That receiving lawyer should ask the bank for what PCRN the bank received. If it's a match, then they have the information to know they have secure funds and they can proceed dealing with it uh, immediately. If not, it's a credit. 
and then you have to wait to find out what happens. The problem we're having is, of course, banks don't answer phones, and so if you call for the information, you may not get there. If you have a good relationship, they may on. Some of the banks saying they don't know what a PCRN is, and that's part of the problem we're having now. But if more lawyers ask for it, more banks will be educated, and that will become the norm. And until we figure it, until the modernization is completed in maybe two, three years, although, you know, two, three years ago, we were saying two, three years. Um, so in another, you know, number of years, that will all be, all three systems under modernization, the um, links, real-time rail, and the ACSS, which is the new ACSS, not the old one, will be irrevocable. At that time, then we won't have a, a problem with it. It'll be immediate and it'll be irrevocable, which means we'll, we'll have a dollar we can transit. Until then, the saving grace we have now is the PCRN. And so I encourage all lawyers to go in and to ask for um, that PCRN. Um, if you want an article, go on to avoid a claim um, again and, and look for update on funds uh, transfers um, by Googling and you know, doing a search in uh, the uh, um, uh, avoid a claim, or I guess just Google um, LeClaire on, um, uh, on um, uh, update on funds transfer, and you should get the article. And it describes in it the PCRN and number and so on and so forth. I encourage all lawyers to now start making sure the receipts you send out have the PCRN, and all lawyers who are receiving, make sure you ask your bank for your PCRN. And let's, we're trying also, the Canadian Bar Association Real Property section is meeting with the Canadian Bankers Association, so CBA with CBA, um, is meeting, um, and we're trying to exactly set up that protocol so that the banks now you know, are familiar, know that it's required, and notice, pass it on immediately. I'd love to be able to, I mean, we have some ability, so why don't they, when they deposit into your account, just put the PCRN in? Mm -hmm. And then when you have it online, you would see the dollar and you would see the PCRN number. And then you would say, I'm good. And it would avoid the banks having to do extra work, um, you know, getting phone calls and answering and, and so on. And the lawyers would be more secure in what they have. But until then, you know, we're, we're in growing phases and I encourage everybody to do so. And it, if it's not working out, please call me. Let me know what the problem is so that I can get back to the bankers to get them to try to encourage their members to uh, get online. Right. Okay. So ideally, when a lawyer is transferring funds electronically, they are looking for a PCRN number in that confirmation that the transfer has been completed. If they don't see it, we're recommending that they try to contact the lender or maybe dig into the documentation um, with that confirmation. Any, anywhere that they can look to try and find that PCRN number. The receiving person will not, if it's not clear on the document, you can't dr drill down because it's a, it's a, it's a copy, photocopy, right? Uh, so right. you can't see. So then call the sending lawyer to say, you know, we forgot to do the PCRN. The sending lawyer in their system should be able to drill down in their system okay. and get the PCRN. I know that some lawyers say that it doesn't automatically show up. They actually have to toggle a couple of, a couple of uh, switches and then the PCRN shows up and then they can print the receipt with the PCRN number. Okay. And so it's a matter of, again, the lawyers who are sending to be mindful of you know, do I see the PCRN and when I print it out, will it be there so that the receiving lawyer has it? Okay. Um, it's a great habit to get into and we can now feel a little more secure about the monies going around um, to deal with it. Um, the one thing though with funds and wiring funds and so on, um, the biggest problem we're having now, and this is not just us, but around the world, is funds diversion. And so we started a campaign called Before You Click which basically says before you click and send that money, have you verified the banking instructions? We have fraudsters now that are infiltrating email accounts and they're waiting for payment instruction. 
uh, or payment timing. And then they send out an email saying, oh, please send the money here. And they give them banking instructions. And instead of going to the legitimate bank, it goes to the fraudster's bank account. And so that has been happening. Um, people say, well, yes, when I get a rede redirection, I do that. No, no. Anytime you get any direction for any money, direction, redirection, whatever you want to call it, anytime you're sending money by wire, you should independently verify where that money is going. Call the other side. Ask them to confirm their banking information. Um, a number of lawyers have called us. They've seen um, our campaign and have called us to say, yes, they did call and um, somebody had tried to divert the money and they avoided it. Um, we had one lawyer um, send $3.8 million wow. to the wrong person. Um, and, uh, you know, that is chilling. Yes, when that's you think, an awful lot of money. You know, where is that money gone and where is it and what happens to it? Mm -hmm. Typically in wire funds, when they wire the funds, they have this, um, uh, this lob, uh, leapfrogging system set up. When, the, when it lands into the account, there's instructions there waiting for it to say, when money comes in, send it to this account. In that account, there's again instructions that they send it out. So unless you catch it early, it leapfrogs three or four times and then disappears, disappears. wherever yeah. the money goes. So it, timing is very important. If ever that happens, call your bank immediately to stop it. Of course, they'll tell you they can't stop a wire. Um, but Again, there's an article uh, online in Avoid a Claim on what to do when you send the funds to the wrong account. Uh, and basically, that's what it is. It's a, that's not just restricted to lawyers. Unfortunately, we've had a number of clients. The lawyers have called us to tell us that they received instructions a day before they were supposed to close and get instructions from their lawyer. They got instructions from supposedly the lawyer or from their bank or from somebody else saying, send the money here. And in one case, um, $200,000, um, basically the equity uh, that they were putting into the, into the house, two days before went off to a fraudster. Um, and on the day of closing, when they called to get the money, of course it was gone um, and not up. So it's not just call for lawyers to do so, but they should be forewarning their clients in a transaction. Anytime, and it's not just real estate transactions, it's anytime that money is to be diverted. Um, because what they're doing is they're infiltrating the email accounts and they're listening. They're monitoring. That's why I say fraudsters are more patient these days. They're sitting there and they're just monitoring. Now, maybe that's AI. You know, they don't have to physically have a person there. They're watching for key words, buzzwords, payments, uh, you know, check or whatever. Um, and then at that point, then they, they, they go in. We've had lawyers' um, letterhead taken with instructions put on it, sent out. We have a lawyer report to us dealing with a lender that they deal with normally which they normally ask for a discharge or mortgage by email and get a discharge statement by email, do exactly that. Lawyer looked at it and said, yes, we're good. Send it out. Let's do it. The clerk looked at it and found it funny. And it just, everything was normal, but they had changed from check couriered to wire. And she was just curious. And she called her contact because they dealt with it a number of times mm -hmm. and said, just curious, when did you change to wire funding? And the bank said, number one, we didn't send you a discharge. And number two, we didn't change our process. So somebody had gone in, picked up the actual discharge of mortgage form, had been able to falsify it to get numbers pretty close. So the lawyer perceived it to be very normal. But again, the staff Notice that basically at that point there was something different and they called before they click 
and save them sending the money somewhere else. And that's why I say that fraud prevention is a team effort. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the office needs to know about this. And so you need to educate everybody in the office, lawyers, partners, um, associates, uh, staff of all levels, reception. Everybody needs to understand these things because the more eyes there are on the various pieces, the less chance there is of the fraud proceeding. And sometimes something that looks normal to you will look exceptional to somebody else. And if they inquiry about it, and we actually have a form um, online also and avoid a claim in our checklist uh, section on checklists to do when you're sending out a wire. Um, so that can be uh, helpful also. This is really good information for everyone. Even if you are the general public, someone who is, whether you purchased before or you're a first time home buyer, general rule of thumb, anytime you are transferring funds to someone, make sure you verify where that money is going and where you're supposed to send it. And not just real estate transactions. This could be buying a car. This could be, could be you anything, know, anything that, that you have where you're sending a significant, any amount of money that you can't afford to lose. Yep. And most of the time, that's most of the money we have. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, anytime you're doing that and you're sending it electronically these days, because there's no verification. When you put an account number in, there's no verification by the bank that it's the name of the, the name of the account is the name of the recipient. And people think that, well, you know, I'm sending it to, to Shauna. You gave me your number. They're going to verify, because I'm going to say I'm sending it to Shauna. Here's the account number. Mm -hmm. They're going to verify that this is Shauna's account. No, it could be somebody else's account. Yeah. But as long as the number's right, the bank follows through in the instructions. And so it's not good enough for us to make sure we have the right number. We have to, you know, ensure that that number is really the right number because um, it is a good number and the money is going to go. And once it's gone, it may be very much irretrievable. So lots of information. This is all, you know, pertaining to fraud and protecting ourselves as much as we can. Um, but maybe just to move on a little bit. So there are a few topics that are new um, or somewhat new. One of them being a vacancy tax. And I know this affects not only the city of Toronto, but also the city of Ottawa. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it works? Um, yes. And, and in fact, you know, in the last year, there's been so many changes to the real estate transaction um, th that impacts it. And one of the biggest ones we have now is this vacancy tax. Um, we've heard a lot about it because Vancouver had it for a while. Um, and now Toronto and Ottawa have implemented. But I can tell you a number of other municipalities are looking at it also. So although, you know, everybody else outside of Toronto and Ottawa may want to tune out, um, you know, this may be coming to a city near you. Um, and so basically what it is, is, is the property is vacant. Now, they all have a different definition of vacancy. Some it's six months, some it's 184 days, some, it, you know, there, there's some subtleties there. Um, and there's some exceptions and things along those lines. But you have to look at that. And if, if there's a declaration to be done, if the declaration is not made, then the tax is accessible. And the tax is 1%, 1% of the value of the transaction. And there's a question also as to what, what's the value of the transaction. Um, it's typically the uh, MCAP valuation or the last transfer if there's one that's been recent. And whatever is the higher one, of course, that's what the municipality will use. Um, and 1% of that could be a substantial amount. Um, if you're doing a real estate transaction, um, you now have to verify whether or not the seller has done the declaration and declared it to be not vacant so that there's no tax applicable. The problem, of course, is it's, a, it's added to the tax roll. Uh, now, many people opt because of title insurance not to do a search. Um, and so title insurers may cover it. Um, uh, I think most of them have talked about that they, they, they will. But I mean, 
you know, title insurers after can change their policy or there could be other circumstances why. Uh, so the good reason why you should be verifying. In fact, in Ottawa, there's a little extra incentive because Ottawa has also come out with a, um, a loan program where you can get a loan for renovations and that's added to the tax roll. Um, again, not quite sure what the title insurers are going to do with that because it's typically paid over 10 years. Uh, and so it may very well be the, the attitude is, well, you're getting the value of the house, um, seller pays their share, you pay the rest of it um, over time. Um, is that fair? Not sure. But again, you know, if you don't do that, that verification, you won't know if that, ro- if that, um, uh, if that loan has been uh, uh, received. Um, so in addition, um, Ottawa has put in a uh, vacancy permit, um, about $1,700. Um, you need to register the vacant property, um, but also on top of that, you need to actually post on the property a, a, a number to contact the owner. So if anybody has a complaint about the property, grass hasn't been cut or some you know people are going into the house or sure. there's something um, that basically they can call somebody. Um, again, you know it's $1,700. Um, again, something to be, uh, to be looked at. Okay, so this all came into effect in Ottawa, I think, on January 1 of this year. Is that correct? Toronto and Ottawa. Toronto as well. Toronto and Ottawa, January 1st of this year, came into effect. Interesting enough, there is a third vacancy tax. Um, The federal government put put in the underused housing tax. It came into effect January 1st, 2022, last year. Um, And basically... This year, in 2023, you need to do a declaration. And if you don't pay the, if you, if you had a vacant property, then again, there's a 1% tax applicable. Now, this is across Canada. So this applies to every property across Canada. It's not as crucial for real estate lawyers in a transaction because it doesn't go against the property as a lien or taxes. It goes against the income tax. Okay. And I think, did you say that the definition of vacant hasn't really been... It, it fluctuates. It, it fluctuates. It, yeah, it, depending on the... So it's not... They don't all have the same definition. Okay. That's a whole issue. So you have okay. to look into that, and we're, we're looking at maybe putting an article up that compares the three so that we can... Uh, people have a, a better way. So we're working on that. That would be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there are you know, different provisions, different timing for when you file, different forms what you file. Uh, most municipalities, Ottawa and Toronto, have indicated that they would send a notice out to the homeowner um, so that they should be able to know that they have to file. Um, so uh, hopefully, um, I saw that Toronto's uh, timeline for filing had gone past and they were sending out notices to those who had not yet filed um, because for some reason they didn't, you know, didn't know or didn't, hadn't filed yet. Um, they were supposedly suspending the penalty for not filing uh, because there is a penalty for not filing also. And uh, so those are things to keep, uh, to keep uh, mindful of. Okay. And I know there is another issue out there that's fairly new. So we now have this non-resident purchase prohibition. Non-Canadian. Non-Canadian. Yes, which is quite interesting because as real estate lawyers, we've always been concerned about residency. We've never talked about citizenship. And now we need to review citizenship. As of January 1st, again of this year, the federal government has a two-year ban. Basically, any non-Canadian cannot purchase residential property. And that seems fairly simple concept to say, okay, I know what we're talking about. Except that purchase is defined, is not really defined. Um, and so again, there's, there's some discrepancy. 
Um, there are some residential properties that are exempted. Um, there are some, the definition of Canadian is, is also uh, expanded. And so you have obviously somebody who was born here, citizen and so on, or somebody who got their citizenship, but there's also permanent residence. There's all kind of, again, you need to go to, to the section to read the definitions. Um, a non-Canadian non who is spouse of a Canadian can be exempt. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a number of different things. It's, it's, nobody really knows where it is right now. There's a number of, of cases uh, um, that, are, that are coming to the courts to try to understand um, what it is, uh, but obviously it's causing a problem. And the other thing is um, residential, we thought, well, okay, if it's a house, we understand that. But they now said if it's zoned residential. And so now you have these shopping malls that would normally be bought by commercial interests um, that are zoned, that are in residential zoning. And now all of a sudden you can't buy the commercial uh, um, property if you're a non-Canadian. And so now we're having problems with, on the commercial side, of all of these mixed-use properties where you may have no residential whatsoever or you have one house on it, care, caregiver's house on the property, um, that now includes that land in residential. There's also the definition of depends on the size of the municipality. So typically they have these metropolitan regions where they, if you're within the metropolitan region, which typically is about 10,000 um, uh, individuals re residents. Um, so if you're within that realm, then it's, it, it, it's caught by the, by the prohibition. But if you're outside, then you're not. And so now you're drawing lines in the, on, on the map and saying, okay, where's this house? Is it inside or outside? And where's the line? Um, and so, you know, a lot more complicated than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with it is, what, how do we determine this? Um, and although it's easy to say, okay, but it's not Canadian, that's, a, that's the purchaser, that's their problem, and what's the, what's the penalty? The penalty is $10,000. The penalty is that they could be forced by the government to sell the property. Um, and and, uh, and, and uh, so that, that is a, a problem. But there's a provision in it that's saying that anybody who assists a non-Canadian is liable to be a fence. So any lawyer, because typically that's what we do, we assist clients buy property. So and what about as real estate agents? A real estate agent, yes. All of these parties, bankers and so on. So if you assist, you could be part could be facing an offense of up to ten thousand dollars. Now, the question becomes, what's a test? And so it does say knowing non-Canadian. So you have to know that the person is not a Canadian and prohibited, which is the test. It seems to be a very objective test. But that's a question mark at this point. When you look at it, Section 116, which is a non-residence sale tax, uh, where a non-resident is selling, um, it, you know, most people say, well, you get a declaration that they're a non-resident and that's all you need. No, the test there in the Act is due diligence that they're a non-resident. A stat deck may satisfy that, but that's not sufficient. You have to do your due diligence. In this piece of legislation, there's no reasonable due diligence required. There's, there's none of that. It's just saying knowing. So it appears to have a very different standard and easier to meet, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, but it now means that lawyers, when they're verifying the ID of clients, not only verifying who the client is and their residency, but now also their citizenship. Uh, the question now becomes, what do we need? 
to prove that. If we're, if we're, and so that's going through. The CBA real property section is looking at that right now. Um, they're looking, we've, we've talked to, we've received information from across the country as to what lawyers are doing or looking at and so on. And we're looking at putting out some kind of a guidance that will be uh, uh, in place. Um, typically what they're doing is obviously getting a copy of the passport, that's the easiest thing, or their permanent residency card or, or something along those lines to prove, um, to add that. Um, some are getting a stat deck. Um, that, but again, is a stat deck enough? Um, you know, that's, that's the question that's coming uh, into mind. So um, the section is looking at it, may have something out. Uh, lawyers should be aware of it. They should be making sure that when they're acting for the buyer. The question is, do we need to, as a, law, as a lawyer for the vendor, worry about the purchaser being a non-Canadian? Um, we're not assisting purchasers. We're assisting our client vendor. Um, and so the arguments are that as a vending lawyer, I'm okay, unless I specifically know that their purchaser is a non-Canadian. Mm -hmm. But unless I don't, you know, if I don't know, then I don't. The vendor client should be okay because typically they haven't met, they don't know the other side, so they don't know that it's a non-Canadian. Mm -hmm. So again, they should be protected, so there should no boomerang around against a lawyer. Um, is that a valid argument? We hope so. Uh, so that really the responsibility definitely falls on the purchaser's lawyer. So purchaser's lawyer needs to satisfy themselves that they're dealing with a Canadian, or as the income tax likes to say, non-non-Canadian, not a non-Canadian. Um, <laughs> so uh, we will see, it's developing. Uh, but again, that's one of the major changes that we've seen uh, in this year. Okay, so a lot more information to come, most likely over the next few months or year. Well, um, hopefully shorter than that, but yes. Hopefully, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, we're, uh, we're meeting now and hopefully we'll be able to resolve this uh, before too long. Okay. Well, Ray, if our listeners have questions or they're curious to follow up with you on any of the issues that we've discussed today, how can they reach you? Um, best way is by email and uh, to reach me because uh, I'm either in meetings or, uh, you know, uh, outside or, or so on. But basically my email, ray.leclair at lawpro.ca okay. um, is the best way. Um, send me a note, tell me what you're looking for, give me a number and I can call and uh, we can set up a, a mutual time. Um, and if anybody wants a presentation, I mean, one of the things that I do is do presentations to law firms and to groups. And uh, so if we can assist, uh, you know, uh, real estate lawyers making it a little easier or understanding this a bit more, uh, we welcome those opportunities to go and present to local associations, law firms, um, just again, same email. Okay, lots of opportunities, hopefully for you to share this information because there's a lot to know. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today, Ray. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure.